about the introducer who, for fun, finding the speaker's text on the podium, read most of it by way of the introduction. <laughs> it's a pleasure to welcome you to uh, get still another week of Rare Book School 2008, our last in Charlottesville for the year, though we have sessions in Baltimore and New York and in uh, Washington, D.C. later in the year. Our speaker this evening uh, is Andrea Krupp, who's conservator at the Library Company of Philadelphia, speaking on a subject for which uh, she is very well known indeed, book cloth patterns. It's a pleasure to welcome her to this podium. So it's a real pleasure to be here, and thank you, Terry, for inviting me to speak and uh, to be among uh, such articulate and knowledgeable professors is uh, really an honor, and uh, I'm here to learn from all of you this week, Sue Allen, and I'm taking Michael Winship's class, and Peter Stallybrass is visiting us, so I hope there'll be a lot of exchange, and I hope what I'm presenting tonight is going to uh, help with that exchange. Um, what I've learned about 19th century books and hope to share with you tonight comes from looking, often with a loop stuck against my eye. I'm an artist and a bookbinder, a visual person. My experience cutting woodblocks, pulling prints, setting type, handling paper and glue, and as a painter, just simply being observant and using my eyes, these very practical experiences help me to understand what I'm seeing when I look at a book. I think about the order of how things were done and how the thing was made. I'm also a book conservator. I've worked three days a week at the Library Company of Philadelphia for 23 years, and I've come to have a great respect for the collection there and a great knowledge of the 19th century books that I work with. Um, I think I can assume most of you here have heard about our wonderful institution, and if you haven't been there in person, it is definitely worth your time to look at the website and use the online resources there. It is a wonderful collection, and I feel truly fortunate to be working with these books and handling them and studying them. About 12 years ago, the head of my department, my colleague Jennifer Rosner, and I began to turn our attention to the 19th century books in our care. Our American imprints are shelved chronologically, so as we were working along through the 1800s, yeah, the beginning of the 1800s, we began to see some changes, and we could look ahead into the 1820s and see some early examples of cloth, quarter cloth, with a paper label on the spine. I'll be talking about those very special and interesting books tonight. But we wanted to understand their unique qualities and treat them with the proper materials and techniques. We began to look for workshops and classes that would enhance our appreciation of these books. It was in 1994 that I came to Rare Book School and attended Sue Allen's class. And from that point on, hand in hand, with our responsibilities as book conservators, Jennifer and I began a project that has continued to grow and evolve over the past 12 years. The core of our research centers on a very large, detailed database of 19th century cloth bindings. As we pulled books from our chronological stacks for treatment, we entered information about the binding, both its appearance and its structure, into the database. 
and right now it stands at 3,600 books with dates that range from 1810 to 1880. So all of the slides I'm showing you tonight and all of the data we gathered in order to compile the database of 19th century cloth bindings all was drawn from our collections at the library company. As a result of our work in this field, our collection of 19th century cloth bindings has grown considerably. Our work has attracted donations of wonderful collections from Todd Patterson and Michael Zinman, among others. In addition to these generous gifts, our librarian, Jim Green, and our curator of, curator of printed books, Wendy Willison, they've dedicated themselves to building on our collection of bindings. And every week we receive alerts from fellow scholars uh, who comb eBay and alert us to uh, certain cloths or certain embossings that we might be interested in. But we try not to compete. We don't do any bidding. Jennifer and I are totally hands-off in building the collection, and uh, we let Wendy have all the fun with the eBay bidding. Um, so let's change this up. I'll have dates for all of those covers in the next slide. I didn't put them in here. Uh, so for the handouts, I just uh, quickly made had a slide screenshots made up of the slides. So if you have a question that relates to a particular item that you see, you can just make a quick note. You know, they're nothing great, those handouts, but it would help me in my conversations with you um, if you have a specific question, just to make a note on those uh, sheets. That's the main purpose of those for uh, following the talk at the reception. Uh, as we know, a lot was going on in the 1820s and 30s. It was the beginning of an exciting period of change. And the artisanal workplaces were transformed as new materials, methods, and machines were introduced. This transition towards industrialization is embodied in the book as object. We can observe the course of its evolution and learn a lot about what was happening in the bindery just by looking and trying to understand what we're seeing. The book, of course, continues to evolve, and new innovations and inventions continue to come throughout the 19th century and even today, but my great excitement is reserved for this early period. Uh, I don't know if the, the dates are in my talk, but uh, mostly I'm going to focus on books from the 18, late 1820s, 1830s, and just a little bit up into the 1840s. What I love about the books from the first half of the 19th century is how they reflect the challenges that face the bookbinder. There was growing economic pressure to compete in a new marketplace of books, being sold for cheaper than ever before to a burgeoning consumer class. They had to face these changes, try new things, risk failure, and keep an open mind. They had to invent ways to decorate and improve a newfangled bookbinding material and invest in machinery required in order to produce good-looking books for little money. It's a fascinating period, and the books that bear witness to this revolution range from the primitive and awkward to highly sophisticated in execution and finish, even at a very early date. Uh, so I've just uh, shown a couple of the books that I'll be talking about in depth. Right in the middle is the paper label binding, and... Uh, some early pre-ornamented, uh, variations of pre-ornamented cloth behind it. Uh, so here's an overview of what I'll be covering. My focus will remain on book cloth in its earliest incarnations, 
but I want to spend a little time discussing transitional book structures that are an essential element to understanding and appreciating the cloth-covered books from the 1820s and 30s. Cloth-bound books that are finished with a paper label are a special group, and I will talk about these in depth. Next, I'll show a couple examples of early, other early book cloth trials, and then we'll have a look at pre-ornamented cloth and some variations of that theme. And finally, uh, we'll dig into a discussion about book cloth grain patterns and their relevance for 19th century book studies. In this slide, you see some examples of some of the earliest publishers' cloth bindings carrying the paper label for the title. What I want you to be aware of when you see this style of binding is how the book was assembled. And the paper label should serve as an alert that what you are seeing is a book that represents the real deep roots of modern bookbinding. Early cloth-covered books from the 1820s and 30s tell a fascinating story of change and adaptation. What we observe with delight in these books are the experiments, mistakes, and transitional constructions that were produced as binders moved from traditional inboards binding to the case binding. So we're going to get a little technical. So I just wanted to lay out the points of uh, some things that will help you uh, to be able to distinguish one from the other uh, because I believe these books are fairly rare. It only happens during a brief period from the late 1820s to 30s. Now I'm going to be a little bit vague about my dates because I haven't really gathered a lot of data on these, but I'm saying... This transitional period, it also depends on what city you're looking at, but in a place like Philadelphia or Boston, um, by the late 1830s, the case binding is completely standard. If you're not doing that, you're not keeping up. Uh, but leading up to that was a, a huge variation in, in what binders were able to do. So I'll just read from what I wrote here. Uh, for a traditional inboard binding, the work was divided into two phases, forwarding and finishing. Forwarding involved preparing the text, that is folding, making up the end sheets, sewing, shaping the spine, and also attaching the bare boards to the text by lacing in the sewing cords and roughly adhering the waste sheet, which is part of the end sheets grouping. And Michael's going to listen to the words that I choose here. So um, I'm used to talking to the same five people about the style of bindings, and my vocabulary is sort of tailored to, you know, the people I work with. But in class, we're learning a lot about terminology, so it hasn't quite sunk in yet. Forgive me. Um, so that's the forwarding. The forwarder continued his work by stretching a piece of leather around the spine and down onto the boards, and then carefully folding the leather over the edges at the top and the bottom, and at the top and the bottom of the spine. So I'll show you lots of pictures, but I want you to sort of understand. So in the second phase done by the finisher, decorated he decorated the binding with tooling in gold or in blind. The decorations were done piece by piece with a handheld brass tool that was heated over a flame and then carefully pressed into the surface one by one. Depending on the cost of the book, the finisher would hand tool designs, either simple or elaborate, with gold leaf or just plain, and each binding was an individual created one at a time. In contrast, a cased binding is essentially the same kind of binding we find 
on nicely made commercial bindings of today. Like I said, this is the beginning of the roots of modern binding here. In a cased binding, the work is divided into two parallel tracks so that the folding and sewing are completed at the same time. That other workers are producing piles of covers or cases made up of two boards, a spine strip, and covered with a piece of book cloth. Now the flat cases can be easily stamped with designs, but this did not come into common use until the late 1830s, even early 40s, depending on uh, how modernized your bindery was at the time. Again, it was a sort of a continual evolution. In a final step, the text and the case are joined together to make the book. I'm going to skip over this real quick, but I'll go back to it. Um, So these close-ups show the area to look at when you see a quarter cloth binding from the late 1820s, early 1830s with uh, either a quarter cloth or full cloth, usually with a paper label because stamping hadn't, you know, they didn't have the stamping machines. Um, You want to look at how the book was made and if you see what I'm trying to highlight there, Todd Pattison provided this image that very clearly shows what's happening and where that uh, white paper abruptly ends, that continues, and it's going underneath the book cloth. So this is an indication that the boards were attached first, then the cloth was wrapped around, and they actually had to cut a little slit here uh, so that the the book cloth could be inserted uh, and then continue folding all around the edges. So this is just a key element, and I, I think the reason why it's important to notice is that they're they're pretty rare, and it just represents where that bindery was at that moment in time, and uh, what kind of structures, you know, they were able to do. This is Boston, 1836. So, like I said, I haven't compiled a lot of data on these. I'm very interested in them. We just received a large collection of paper label bindings from Todd Pattison. Uh, how many books? About a hundred, I'd say. So we're just beginning to to look at these and tabulate some data. Uh, But, you know, hopefully, if people are paying attention to this, it's not discarded, and and it's recorded, and we begin to see trends of of where the technology is in Boston or in Philadelphia or in some other out-of-the-way place. Another, okay, so I have a few more examples of those. This is a beautifully finished cloth. Compared to this, which you can't really see, but I think I have it here, it's a very fuzzy, that, that, uh, this beige one here. It's a kind of a furry cloth. It's not very well finished compared to this, which is brilliant and glazed. It's 1837. It's also from Boston, so it's obviously from a book cloth manufacturer who was uh, quite a bit ahead, or a cloth finisher, a manufacturer, whoever was making these cloths. Um, they had really begun to nail down the formulas to create a purpose-made bookbinding material. Um, I think I have maybe another one of these. This one, again, so all of these are inboards bindings. Uh, this was another problem with inboards, was it created a very kind of lumpy spine they had to stretch the cloth as if it was leather, but leather was a little thicker. It disguised the lumpiness. But this thin cloth, it just didn't quite do it. So it was just another one of those effects. It was difficult to do. But it was another one of the pushes towards creating the case 
and understanding that, that the production line was a much more efficient way. And then when the stamping machine came in, it was clinched. There was no going back. And that's what we begin to see in the very late uh, 1830s, 1840s, again, depending on the city, depending on the binder. So, let me see if I missed anything here. Powerful stamping machines began to be used, which enabled the stamping of designs in cloth right on the flat cases. Book cloth itself was being manufactured in an array of decorative colors and patterns. The modest, unadorned brown books of the 1820s and 30s were quickly passed over for the decorative stamped bindings that the better equipped binderies began to produce. As the concept of cloth as a book covering material began to take hold, we can see examples of some very early experiments adapting regular household fabrics. Here's a pair of books that have fascinated me. They've been sitting on my desk for at least 10 years uh, up on my shelf, but I love them. And first uh, one we had in our collection, I think it's the one with the little leather label, and then Michael Zinman, uh, when he gave us his bindings collection, this one came in, and I, it just jumped out at me because the fabrics are so similar, but they tell different stories. Um, at first I wanted to mention there's a wonderful reference book which I... Uh, gave some information about in the handout. It's um, Florence Montgomery's Textiles in America. She uh, pictures some early brocade embossed, well, early embossed fabrics. They weren't brocade. They're not woven patterns. They're embossed patterns. And uh, this example that she shows here is probably from about 1700. And just compare it to the patterns. These are rubbings of those two book covers rubbed out just to, to reveal the design, and you can see how, how very, very similar uh, they are to that much, much earlier example of uh, an embossed textile that was intended for use as a bed covering, a drapery, who knows what. Um, and I think it's also remarkable that you know the color is, they're the same color, they have the paper labels. I'm gonna talk about the structure and I'm just going to touch briefly on uh, a point that I elaborate in my book regarding the relationship between textile finishers in industry, as Florence Montgomery clearly shows, that, that goes way, way back before they were even dreaming of putting cloth on books. And um, uh, these were the uh, probably among the earliest suppliers of book cloth because they had the machinery Here's a, a simple rolling machine. In this case, they could be uh, creating a moiré pattern for a fabric that was intended for dressmaking. Um, and here's a much more elaborate machine, but again, simple in concept. And these machines were already functioning. They were already creating pattern cloths. Um, and it was just a matter for the uh, uh, cloth finishers to, to continue to evolve and adapt their formulas so it could be a really useful fabric for bookbinding. Uh, so I've got some good close-ups of what that surface looks like. And you can actually see in the actual book a kind of a chalky, full of pigment uh, fill that um, helps to create, to uh, allow this embossed pattern, which is you know fairly subtle, 
but when you look up close, you can see actually, you know, how the rollers were engraved. Now, this is Philadelphia, 1818, and I believe that's perfectly plausible um, for this cloth to be on a book of that early imprint. And I believe it's an inboards binding, but I'm not 100% positive. So if it's a case binding, that would be a little early for a case binding. But I think it's in boards. This one definitely is in boards. But this is 1836. But it's in Lexington, Kentucky. So it's just sort of demonstrating how maybe a little bit slower. Maybe there, there wasn't really a lot of book cloth for this binder that he had on hand, so he was doing the best he could with materials that he found locally. I don't know, but that's just the kind of interesting story that further data gathering and images, they're beautiful to look at. And they, they do raise a lot of questions. So I did make a note that in 1820, the population of central Philadelphia was about 64,000 people, while in Lexington in 1830, there was a population of 6,000. So, you know, we're not going to call it a backwater, but it was uh, to, to see a repurposed textile appearing on a book in 1836 in an inboards binding, which is definitely an old style at this point in the larger cities. I think this is also correct as a date for this binding. It's just reflective of where it was done. So um, now we'll move on to pre-ornamented cloths. These are purpose-made book cloths. These are among the earliest purpose-made book cloths. And as such, I think they're, they're very important to, to document, to recognize them for what they are, and to continue. Um, well, it's, it's always fun to find a new pattern, but I just think they're really um, one of the central, an important identifier for early cloth. Because the style doesn't, definitely doesn't go on uh, past the early, early 1840s. Uh, so they're just beautiful, and they're remarkably sophisticated. They employed skilled engravers that must have represented the pinnacle of their art. Um, embossed pre-ornamented book cloth was a solution to decorating the front and back covers and spine in one pass through the rollers. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about how these were made. I wrote an article about uh, how these were produced with some good contemporary um, mentions. Sue Allen pointed me to a really nice one that described how the rollers were engraved with devices for the front cover, back cover, and spine. I mean, it's, it's absolutely describing this method of decorating book cloth. And so this was before stamping presses were readily available, but rollers and rolling machines were already in use. So it's a, a, you know, a brilliant mind. They had good engravers, um, and it created a beautiful book cover, but it didn't last. Um, so when you see one of these, you know you're looking at uh, something that represents a particular period. Um, here's a, a beautiful cover uh, from 1837, and you can see the two designs. These are not... So the, the concept is that the, t the three areas of engraving were done on one roller, and that also included all this ground, all that graining, and all that fine... Boy, I don't think I have any good close-ups of this. 
But I have a, a piece of this cloth, so if you uh, see me or find me, I can let you see what this cloth looks like when it's lifted up off the boards. Um, what you'll see when it is lifted up off the boards, excuse me, is uh, a hollowness behind the design. And what you will also see is a smooth board underneath, which is very clearly that these designs were not stamped with powerful stamping presses, but instead the cloth was pre-ornamented, pre-decorated, and then applied to the boards. And the reason why it didn't uh, really last that long was, first of all, it must have been incredibly expensive to invest in these rollers, which were very elaborately designed, but yet they couldn't be used on just any size book. Here's the same design, the same roller, on a book with a much fatter spine. So you can see how the, the cover designs have been sort of pulled in towards the center. And, you know, this would never fly. If I tried to make a book like this and, you know, say this, this is a good job, it, it would be sent right back. So you can just imagine the binders rolling their eyes, uh, having to line up these boards, and, you know, it's not quite fitting. So that was pretty quickly abandoned. But uh, let's see, I, we published this article. So Jennifer and I worked very closely on this project in 2000. Uh, we had identified, I don't know, maybe 20 patterns, and now we have 38 different patterns on books with dates ranging from the late 1820s to um, the early 1840s. And I think I have, okay, so here's the cloth. I brought this with me. And um, there's the inside. And you can see the hollowness of those designs. And that's the outside where it's hollow here, it's raised here. And the uh, when the binders were applying these to the boards, they were using a hot glue, an animal glue that wasn't full of moisture. It was just a gelatin, so actually the gelatin kind of helped to fill in those hollowed-out areas, and the design didn't get crushed down. And also, I think at this point, the book cloth that they were using had already been brought to a state of incredible perfection. And some of the... Uh, just look at this Boston book. This never fails to just, it just amazes me how, um, how beautiful and fresh. So this is like top quality. They had already brought this to a state of perfection. So very quickly, depending on what city you're in, the stamping machine's coming in. And this is how a board would look uh, that had been stamped. So here the cloth is lifted up off of it, and you can see very clearly the impression that that huge stamping machine would make into the surface of the board. So that's the primary difference. Uh, so it, it, uh, it didn't exactly die out as a concept here. S simultaneously in England, when we see pre-ornamented embossed designs, this company, which has produced the most beautiful, elaborate bindings, they were really cutting edge. Uh, they came out with this which is a pre-ornamented pattern done up in, this is actually a woven brocade. Uh, so imagine the expense. But it was specifically made for this uh, gift book type. I mean, this is a very, um, very high-end book. So they spared no expense in creating this pre-ornamented pattern that was actually a woven pattern. I've got some great close-ups of it. And the other one, even as late as 1847, 
uh, this is a printed pre-ornamented, and I've got some good close-ups of that too. So the concept, you know, they were really attracted by this idea, and they're beautiful. I wanted to show you also the effect of, uh, we have these two volumes in our collection. The second one on the bottom has this strange striation of the gold, and uh, these details show you why that is, and it has to do with the thickness of the gold thread that's been woven into the blue. So at the bottom it was a heftier weight, and towards the top it's a much lighter thread, so the pattern becomes a little faded. And here's the um, the printed pre-ornamented. Am I sounding okay? All right. And here's a close-up of that. So in this case, this was done in a two-step process, so this is actually fairly elaborate. The pre-ornamentation was printed in gold, and then as a second step, the sheet was run through uh, a roller that had this rib design on it uh, to further uh, finish the surface of the cloth. And again, you can just see the binders. Like, this is not going to be a good day. We've got to do 500 of these and line them all up perfectly, and they don't always line up perfectly. So maybe before lunch, after lunch. <laughs> Okay. So by the 1830s, late 1830s, you know, somewhere in there, case-bound, cloth-covered bindings were the predominant style. Binders continued to demand patterned or grained book cloths, which a burgeoning book cloth industry provided. The styles changed over the decades in response to social trends, stylistic trends. But after the introduction of the stamping press, the cloth surface decoration took a back seat to the gold stamp designs that added so much impact to the book on display. Um, so you who are lucky enough to be attending Sue Allen's class, she's going to take you on a whole tour of the 19th century styles and the evolutions and uh, she's got a, a great eye for these things, and I can't thank her enough for opening my eyes to the beauty of these books. And I can truly say that one week was uh, absolutely a life-changing experience and has set me on a path that I never never imagined. And that's the fascination with these books, is the more you look, the more you see, and the more you want to know about them, and the more you want to see them preserved and studied and, and valued. Um, so this is the book that uh, just came out from Oak Knoll. I didn't bring any copies. I'm sorry, I can't sell you them right here, but you can order them easily from Oak Knoll. Or maybe Terry can, you know, give them some hell and have them FedEx a pile down here, but I wasn't able to get them to do that. Um, anyway, it's, it's available now. Um, but... Uh, in the book, I've done some writing and some speculating about the origins of book cloth and its manufacture. It's, it's in, uh, you know, just the beginning of real research into this field, I think. Uh, but the meat of it for me is the catalog of 19th century book cloth grains and also the, uh, the appendices that, that accompany the catalog. And to me, this is the most important part of the book. This is the table that lists the grains and presents data about frequency and date ranges, most importantly, for each pattern. This is the section that I hope someday to build on. Uh, 
or that I hope will be built on by uh, other researchers and, you know, some magical centralized database that's going to, you know, compile all this information uh, to get a more complete picture of each grain by continuing to do surveys. Uh, but for now, the counts and the date ranges uh, that I've published, they reflect the collection at the Library Company of Philadelphia. Um, let me talk a little bit about the table. Um, so, well, what I've laid out is, uh, this, is this shouldn't be so hard to explain, but there it is. The ones with the asterisks, <laughs> it's really simple. I, I gave it, I, I, I noticed in the, uh, the previous work that's been done in this field by Ball, Tanzel, Gaskell, Carter, Sadlier, and, and in the BAL, and of course the, the Winterbottom Company with their records, you know, there's some history here to naming and to attempting to assign families to these patterns of grains, but what I saw as I was working with the books that there just wasn't, it didn't, I, I, I wanted to know, well, this is a rib, but it's not that rib, and it's not that rib, and this is a really unique rib, and I only see this in the 30s, and I just wanted to really uh, find a place where I could uh, begin to isolate what I felt were really unique and individual patterns from larger families of patterns that, you know, a diaper is a diaper. I'm going to show you all the diaper grains I've found. Some of them remain, you know, a big mess, uh, but other patterns begin to uh, rise up as, as being... as. Uh, having some unique qualities that can be quantified and measured. Um, but what I've done in the table, so where the, where the pattern has an asterisk, this is for me um, my attempt at, at uh, sorting out some individual patterns or at refining the range of counts per centimeter like for ribs and the diapers, where you can actually count something that's really useful. For the leather grains, it's still, uh, and the sands and the pebbles, that, that's still very, very difficult to sort. I'm not pretending I can identify a Morocco grain any better than you can. Uh, but the beads, the ribs, those can be measured and, and counted, and then you can start to begin to isolate date ranges Okay, so the asterisks are new ones. So there's no data here. They've never been uh, covered in previous literature. But then something like bead five, where the, this, where the measurements actually uh, agree with Ball because he set out a suggestion for bead, not medium, not fine, not coarse, but just bead, and that's what he called it. And it was six to seven per centimeter. Um, you know, then I've, I've given that data there and, and tried to really uh, match up what previous authors have, have observed. And um, then what I've added here, which I think is, well, besides the pictures, which are the most important thing, is the date ranges. And you can see, I mean, this is a huge category. And, and the, the date range is vast. So it, it's still, I don't know how meaningful that is. But uh, something like this with dates from 1839 to 1842 a very fine count. Um, I think that's significant, and um, I just I just didn't want to group them in with the others. You know, I felt like that really said something to me about early cloth grains. Um, 
So these are among the earliest patterns. Here's a wonderful uh, diagonal rib. This just stands out to me. This you're not going to find outside of the state ranges, I'm convinced. If you see one, let me know, because I want to know when the imprint of the book that it was on. Uh, the leather, like I said, this is, uh, this is mushy. This is pretty unique, this uniform, uh, vermiform, which is actually a variation of a leather grain, but I just thought it looked real wormy. And uh, then the diapers, and I'm going to go into some detail about the diaper grains. So I think it's, it's significant. I think it's worth the trouble to, to count and to just look closely. Um, even if you can't record everything, it just enhances your appreciation of, of the book you're handling, and it's, there's a lot of information there. Uh, you do need a loop or a, a high-resolution scanner, and I have to just give you a hint. If you're counting rib cranes, this is what you do. You mark an area on your book cover, say with, well, I don't want to say tape, but, okay, some lightly placed sticky notes that are marked out with one centimeter. And then you don't look at them and count them. How can you? Because once you get the loop on your eye, you, you can't see anything if you stick anything under there. You take your fingernail or a micro spatula, a little lightly, lightly, and just click, 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 click. You're just counting by feel because there's no way you can count them with your eye. And we're talking about some of these rib cranes have 32 ribs per centimeter. For real, this is like way beyond the S grain. S grain was like 26. And the ultrafine is like 33 ribs per centimeter. So you really do have to get real tactile and, and just click away and, and do it several times. Take an average. And then you get your ranges. <laughs> Take an average or, you know, just try to get in there. All right. So uh, most of the rest of this I'm going to just sort of uh, show you because we have this great opportunity to see uh, real good high-resolution blow-ups of these super fine grains, in this case, 22 to 20, 20 to 22 diamonds per centimeter. Uh, and I only saw three of these, and they were all from 1839. So, like, to me this is significant. This is one of the earliest cloth grain patterns I didn't put all the bibli... I don't know where this book was published. And so it's all in the database, the big database of 19th century cloth bindings. All three of those books are in that database. And you can see, if you care to look, what cities they were published in. Uh, but for the catalog of book cloth grains, I just took a representative example, gave a date range, and... Um, tried to sort of make this the ideal example of ultrafine diaper. And this is most important to remember with the leather grains because I'm showing you some kind of ideal representation of a very broad pattern. Um, here's one fine diaper. This is a big category. 69 examples of this uh, with a really wide date range. So, you know, I don't know what you can learn from that. This I'm going to show you again later, but this, this pattern represents medium diaper. This is a real early one. Well, early and late. 
coarse diaper. Very dimensional. And they're so tactile. I just love to think of like the shape of the of the engraving tool that was used to create these patterns, you know, some kind of giant wedge shape that's just gouging out to create these pyramids. It's very much a handmade thing at this early date. Later, you know, there's this sort of translation of patterns and transferring of patterns. Uh, but in, it's, it's hard to tell in these designs. I mean, they look so mechanically perfect. It's hard to imagine that someone engraved them. But when you think about those pre-ornamented engravings that we saw, you, you know the skill that these people had. I think this is really unique. This one jumped out at me. This is not a dimensional pattern at all. So the Buren, although the scale of design is about the same as this, the tool used to create it was very, very different. It's very soft and very flat. It's not pyramidal. And the degree of the... I was measuring the degrees. It, you know, again, this, there's some range in there. But this one, all four of those examples came in, you know, very much at 80 degrees. So, uh, and, and here, this one too. This is a very specific grain to me in our collection. So it's, it's a small sampling, but um, you'll be amazed at what you find and what jumps out at you. Uh, here's another nice one with a nice tight grouping of dates, and that's what you want to, when you start to see that, then then I think that's really uh, something worth our attention. Another nice one, this kind of a fuzzy slide. A real, real fine one. This is uh, from Boston. This is probably a Bradley binding. And this is the slide I used in the, uh, the first slide. And here's another nice one. Okay, this was made with, this almost looks like that smooth diaper, but the date is late. And uh, with a loop, you can see that those lines weren't just engraved, they were dotted. Those are actually like little dotted lines. Uh, this is late, this is winter bottom probably. And again, you know, you get to have this sort of mushy feel. You, you don't have a sense of the en engraver here. You have a sense of a copied pattern of a roll that had been used and used and used and used. And it, they just don't have the same sharpness. I'm, I'm so prejudiced. <laughs> and this is a nice uh, striped wavy grain, wavy diaper. But I'm going back to this one because I didn't realize this at first. I think this is the picture in the book. But what I noticed when I started really zooming in was how actually really uneven this pattern is. It's not at all, it, they didn't use a ruler because you know some of them are distinctly rectangular, other ones are more square. So I just wanted to point that out as something, if you are really gonna get obsessive about that, which I'm not, uh, you could start to pin this down as an individual pattern off a specific roll from a certain city used by a certain binder. Who knows? Uh, and so of these 19, I'm definitely going to go look at them again because I think that's a really wide date range. And uh, I'd like to see if I can sort of pin down maybe if I can observe that that same role had been used on, I don't know. We'll see. But you know what I'm getting at. It's, it is a little obsessive. So... <laughs> 
this is uh, another section of the book which I'm not going to talk much about. Um, uh, just for you to know, there's a whole other very significant group of patterns that are also really key to, uh, well, they're just among the earliest cloth, purpose-made book cloth patterns that we see. And these, and this a vast group of, oh, I don't know, it's big, more than 100 of, of these ribbon-embossed patterns which range from, you know, floral to geometric. You'll see a lot of these uh, coming up in Sue's class. And uh, they're abandoned very quickly. You know, the gold stamping comes in by the mid-40s. You don't see floral. Pa- I mean, it's a very rare thing. There was a little revival in the 50s of some floral patterns, but essentially with gold stamping, with cheaper ways of producing book cloth with simpler grains, that provided a background, these elaborate floral designs quickly were faded out. But as a group, they're they're very um, they're beautiful to look at, and I think they're really uh, among the earliest book cloths that we see. So here's just three more patterns that have been added that aren't in the book. Well, I only show you two, but there's another one somewhere. Uh, so definitely, if you look, you'll you'll find some goodies. And I think that's all I have. Thank you very much. And cookie fortunes. Donald Farron, in a brilliant response, said, How wonderfully well organized you must be to have time to turn to, to this subject. <laughs> but added that he himself had no time for it because he was having so much trouble figuring out how to catalog his collection of fruit stickers. <laughs> <laughs> and he had a problem. He had arranged his fruit stickers along the front of all the cabinets in the kitchen. <laughs> and when his wife ate her third fruit sticker, which had fallen into the salad. It was necessary for him to change. Now, that's obsession. (laughs) What Andrea is talking about is research, and it's a great pleasure to listen to it. Please join our speaker for a reception that follows immediately at the first floor Alderman Library staff lounge.